Today's show is made possible by Wine Emotion USA, the industry leader in wine dispensing and preservation systems. Reduce spoilage, track your pours, and increase your return on investment. With 30 days of preservation, three pour control volumes, and Wine IDS software, Wine Emotion systems are the dynamic tool to expand your wine by the glass program. Visit WineEmotionUSA.com, that's WineEmotionUSA.com, to see how your business can grow your wine sales with Wine Emotion wine dispensing and preservation systems. Wine Emotion USA, technology at the service of wine. They were saying, oh my God, why would you do this? I mean, nobody's going to, you know, it's a serious economic piece. Nobody's going to pay attention. I said, no, I don't believe that. I said, actually, I think people will read it. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a show about the people, places, and stories that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfuss, and on today's show, we speak to an award-winning percussionist, once aspiring oceanographer, and business major who has become one of the most influential bankers in the wine business and helping the industry better understand trends developing in wine today. My, my name is Rob McMillan, and... What I do is uh, kind of anything involved in the wine business from finance to research. So I have a very unique job and probably the best job in the world. Also joining me in the studio today is... Geraldine Brostrom, and I am the Managing Director of Italian Wine Central and also an instructor here at the Napa Valley Wine Academy. Could you tell us a little bit about your early years, the years that led up to you becoming uh, a banker? The reality is, is I'm ill-suited as a banker. I was raised all my life as a musician, and uh, but also favored science. I was going to be an oceanographer until I got to college and figured I couldn't make money at it. And then I was too afraid to make, uh, try to do the music route and actually uh, make be a professional musician. Although I was, I won a uh, individual percussion championship in Philadelphia in 1976, the olden days. I was still too afraid, and so I just took business, and when I graduated uh, from Sac State, I had one job offer with an 11.8% unemployment rate, and it was as a banker, so that's what I am. <laughs> you you bring the arts to, to the banking world, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, there's not a lot of creative people in banking. It, it, it flushes, the training you have to go through is so rigid, uh, regimented, it flushes a lot of creative people out, and I don't think a lot of creative people really aspire to it. But after you get to cruising altitude, you get above all that training, it's actually uh, pretty cool you can be in a position where you can help create uh, interesting financial solutions or find creative business solutions to people's problems. And and so, you know, finding people that actually have those split skills now in, in both training and in, in economics and and accounting is an example, but can also come up with creative business solutions. That's it's rare, so that that helps at the end of the day. So speaking of creativity, Silicon Valley Bank, right? We, we, when we hear the name Silicon Valley and 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 bank, the wine business doesn't come right to mind. So tell us a little bit about your role in establishing the the wine division of Silicon Valley Bank. Well, back in the back in the day, I was going to start businesses for the bank. I wrote business plans, and uh, we're going to go into all these different business verticals. Um, and so, we actually hired somebody else after I finished the plan to run the business. And uh, about a year later, I got a uh, well. Going back a step, I the first one I did was actually mortuaries, 
And uh, the guy I was working for looked at me and he said, uh, that's never going to work. And I said, well, he, you know, I showed him all the reasons why it should work, all of the logical reasons why it should work. And he said, well, who the hell's going to work for you? <laughs> so, actually, that's a good point. Who wants to go to their high school reunion and say, I work for the mortuary division of Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> you know? So I said, well, scratch that. It's like this practical thing I hadn't thought of. Uh, so then we did the we did the wine division and uh, hired somebody else a year later. Our CEO said, "Well, we got rid of that guy. We made a mistake, and and uh, you got to move up." And so that's how I got here. Tech and wine is there a big difference between lending for the tech industry and lending for the wine industry? Huge, uh, and actually getting that business plan approved in a tech bank was very difficult because in technology, uh, let's just say you have. You know, you have uh, fast integrated circuits that you're making, uh, as an example. Um, if you have any inventory, the second that the next faster one comes out, that's all useless inventory. So the obsolescence factor is huge. And so when I was going through uh, approval, people were looking at days of inventory, and it's 3,000. <laughs> you have 3,000 days, not 30, 3,000. And it'd be like, oh, my God, what, you know. That's horrible. And I said, no, 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 that's good. That's aging. <laughs> that's good. So uh, so it's very, very different. Um, but, you know, here's the weird the weird thing about it that's uh, kind of an artsy similarity is that Silicon Valley Bank, uh, both is the bank that that watched the and helped in the in the processing of the Silicon Valley from what really at that time was Apple Orchard, or not Apple so much, but uh, Apricot cherries, you know, there were some vineyards down there, really. Um, and so we helped in in changing that into a world economic power, uh, starting our organization in 83, um, and seeing all this development through the venture capital side, private equity. You know, it's just been amazing seeing that transformation. In the same way, uh, we've come up here and, and helped the Napa Valley stay the way it is, but evolve. So uh, they they both came from similar places, and it's the same organization that's that's helped them in both plays. But kind of in an artsy way, we've seen a, a good a good result in both cases. So so what is the main difference between what you do uh, as as the wine division of Silicon Valley Bank and what a regular lender say um, does? Why, why would as a winery? Why wouldn't I just look at all lenders and and not just specifically you? I I think all all wineries should look at all opportunities right um, um, but there's you're gonna find there's differences so if somebody came to me and they could qualify for let's just say a, a consumer mortgage because they have a few acres of grapes in a house you know from from a rational standpoint you would rather just do that because it's simple it's fast um, you know if you could actually figure that out then you know you should do that but what we do is we think we help clients succeed, and it sounds like marketing BS, but I can look back over the 25 years I've been doing this and, and give countless examples of things that we've done either through you know, business planning, advice. Um, you know, the reality is in this business, there really isn't a lot of information. There's not a lot of data that you can find, and, and we've spent our time digging this information out creating reports, research that does help people make decisions. Otherwise, you're stuck in, you know, in the absence of information, you're stuck looking around your own, uh, your own universe and saying, well, you know, what does this look like? 
Um, and you may make the wrong decision without being able to see the market and, and things that are coming. And so we spend a lot of time, in some respects, doing that and then giving it all away, making the whole, the whole industry better. Sometimes I wonder if that's a smart idea, but but I think it's worked out, generally speaking. And then, you know, and then we hold our our, our, our clients' hands and, and, you know, boy, in the Great Recession, we had a a lot of clients that were struggling, probably a third, and uh, you know it all worked out. Nobody went under. Everybody survived, got through it, and and we did well. So you know, there's different kinds of lenders. What we do takes a lot of time. It's expensive, um, yet we have almost no loan losses ever. And because of that, we're, we're kind of the same price as everybody else uh, because. Everybody else has to pay for their loan losses, and we don't. We just throw it into overhead, and price ends up being about the same. So it's a it's a model that's worked out phenomenally well. You touched on one one of the um, the things that your your institution does does differently than a lot of other institutions, and that is this yearly. Uh, you publish a yearly report on the industry, um, the state of the industry, the wine industry, and it's something that I know everyone eagerly awaits. Right, everyone's waiting for for that report to come out. That seems pretty groundbreaking. I think for any industry that that so much energy and research would go into creating this report. Can you tell tell us a little bit how it came to be and and what you what role you played in in birthing this? Yeah, the uh, as as many in many cases it's it's an accident. And uh, this is an accident that evolved. So uh, early in in the uh, division's career I had to write a board report, and I didn't have any information. I couldn't find any information. It was all old and dated. It was the stuff I wrote the business, the original business plan on. So I started gathering new information through interviews and and uh, basic research, really, uh, to to create something. So this little three page report ended up going to the board, and I stood back and I looked at it, and I said, "Boy." This is information that all of my clients would love to see. And so I it was in December, I just turned it around and shipped it off to everybody on an email, and I got a phenomenal response. It was crazy. Where'd you get this? How do you know this? Blah, blah, blah. And so the next year, I um, actually put it in a Word document and, and put clip art in it <laughs> uh, because that was kind of new back then. And um, uh, that got, you know, more. And then, and then that evolved into formal surveys and, and at a at a point the the news media started to that's that's redundant the news media uh, they they started to get uh, wind of it and so then they, they wanted to talk about it they wanted more uh, so the, the appetite really it's the whole success of it has been driven by the appetite from others today that it's um, takes three and a half months to put it together and and, and produce it we have a uh, a live video cast that we that we do out of our our studios in Silicon Valley um, to talk about the business that happens right before Unified Conference in in January, um, and the the, uh, the report itself is used in um, at least I'm going to say between thirty and fifty universities worldwide now. Um, so it's it's really transitioned into something that uh, is uh, taken on a role that I I never ever uh, thought it would, would get to, and the fact that it's actually got worldwide notice now. I can imagine a lot of businesses make decisions based on um, uh, on this report. 
General Line, I know you have a uh, you have the next question, so I'll, I'll send it over to you. Well, it's great to see you again, Rob. Thanks for coming. And it is true that uh, it's used in universities around the world, and I've used I use it with my business students as well. So That's I've, right. I've uh, for better or worse, I've read I've read several of the last years cover to cover. At least it's entertaining. Yes. Well, <laughs> and and in fact, that's what I want to ask you about. I, I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, specific questions about the data, but but first, tell us, uh, you know, how you pick your how you came up with the idea to have movie themes, and 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 how you decide which movie you're going to wrap this report around. Yeah. The- so for people that haven't read it, it uh, I personally am bored reading reports. Um, and I, I think most people are. I think I'm like most people. It just It's like nails on a chalkboard. And, and I think really today um, most people want to be entertained in anything. And having my creative side, you know, my, my life in entertainment and, and, uh, and music, I just can't do anything straight. It's just not possible for me. So – um, you know, whether it was snapping in clip art into that original one uh, uh, or, or whatever, at some point, I don't know how it came to – oh, I know how it came to me. I, th- I think I think I said, boy, things are so good, it's like Field of Dreams. And um, it was, it was you know, one of those kind of things. It could even have been The Wizard of Oz. I can't remember the first one, but, uh, you know, like we're not in Kansas anymore. So there's these these lines that just kind of come up and – and so that's how the, the, the you know originally started. I said, well, I just I'll just put a new line to each little section. Um, and of course, my marketing department at the time uh, they were saying, oh my God, why would you do this? I mean, nobody's gonna, you know, it's a serious economic piece. Nobody's gonna pay attention. I said, no, I don't believe that. I said, actually, I think people will read it <laughs> because it's 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 actually entertaining. And uh, I mean, even down to the footnotes, I write things about my mom in the footnotes and stuff like that. You know, you you think you're gonna go back and find something that's uh, you know, this footnote's going to reflect some sort of research that was done on a point that I made, and I start talking about my mom or whatever. <laughs> you know, I think we got we got to laugh at ourselves and what we do. And, and entertainment, I think, is a is a way to I think make things stick. And um, and it's actually uh, turned out my my uh, my instinct turned out to be good. And and for a period of time, our entire organization started adopting what I did. But at first, uh, many people said, "No, that's dumb." And uh, uh, apparently it wasn't. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. Entertain- entertainment is uh, is uh, always welcome. And, and, and I think a lot of the analogies that you use uh, really help people remember the information because when it's just a sea of numbers, it's, it's really difficult to digest. So, so let's talk about some of the concepts in uh, the most recent report. And, you know, a lot of our listeners will be st- are, are students of wine. Um, some of them are, are well advanced and they master of sommelier program, MW program. But some of them come to us at the very beginning of their careers to learn about wine. And so this term that a lot of us do know what it means, premiumization, um, finds a lot of space in this report this year. So so tell us, define that for us. Tell us what that is, and 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 what we're going to be seeing in the next couple of years. Yeah, uh, Jeff Siegel actually has given me credit for coming up with that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's true or not, but that might be my legacy. I don't know. Uh, uh, when I wrote the original business plan, um, that was 1992. And back at that point, overall wine demand was still dropping off. It was, it was an era of mothers against drunk driving. We were increasing the alcohol, uh, the, the uh, maximum age, not the age of maximum drinking, and then age too. Everybody's going from 18 to 21 instead of 
instead of I think back then in California is 0.14 percent and it went to, to 0.10 and then now where it is 0.08. So all these things uh, kind of conspired to drive down alcohol consumption. But when I looked at the industry, I thought I saw one data point that was saying to me that people were going to be going to better alcohol premiumization. And uh, I still have the original report, so I can I can prove that I predicted it. Uh, and it was 1994. That was the bottom. It's also happened to be the the that one period of time where the median boomer it was median boomer hit 35. And I, as I say all the time, it's 35 to 55 are your greatest spending years. And the boomer generation, of course, has driven a lot of consumer um, change. It's just a gigantic uh, um, cohort. Uh, so premiumization really reflects the underlying reality that both my generation and actually the generations that have come after us have all wanted more. It's, uh, there was a, I think it was an AT&T commercial. It's like, I just want more. I just want more. I just want more. <laughs> These little kids that were being, you know, that was a really great commercial. Uh, but I think we we all kind of want more, and uh, and so that's what we see. We especially now as the mature generation, my my uh, parents' generation, uh, my mom's still alive, lives with me, and so when I say you're you know you're, the generation's dying out, she reminds me she would appreciate that I that I wouldn't say things like that, so I have to I have to stop myself. Um, but obviously they're consuming less. There's fewer of them. Let's just say that. And they were jug wine drinkers. My generation, more varietal wine drinkers, um, a little bit more expensive. And over our period of time, we've seen things become more expensive. But this premiumization thing carries across in, in multiple product categories. And the luxury category itself is is really in a very, very interesting period right now as the boomers hitting retirement. And um, and we'll have to see exactly what that means uh, going forward for, for the luxury category as a whole. Okay. And, you know, uh, you talk uh, a fair bit uh, about, uh, obviously, domestic wine, and you just talked about uh, varietal wines and jug wines, all phenomena of, of uh, the U.S. wine market. Um, but you also talk about imports in your report and uh, what, a, what an increasingly larger share uh, imports have, have, have come to take. You indicate that you think that they're sort of going to slow down, but that, in fact, um, bottled imported wine will, again, start to take market share. So, you know, what uh, what do domestic producers need to look out for, and, you know, how can they remain competitive? Yeah, great, great question. Um, that is one of the, the big issues that everybody faces right now is, you know, can you continue to see this kind of, of uh, growth in price? And especially in a low inflation environment and a, and a, a low GDP growth environment, and my answer is no, you you, you can't. Um, so there's this term that's evolved in the business right now. It's called searching for margin, and what that means is if you are in the Napa Valley as an example, and and you know you're you have acreage that you want to buy and it's $400,000, but your, you know, your bottle price is 25 bucks or 35 bucks. Uh, you probably can't do that. So you, you're, you're going to go to Lake County and find something to blend in. You might start going to Oregon or Washington and start a Pinot program in Oregon or Washington. You might start a, uh, a board, a Bordeaux style program of some sort. Um, but you know, somewhere along the line, we've got, to, we've got to look for margin. And as it relates to, to imports, um, with a strong U S dollar, the imports are cheaper 
And uh, we've seen growth in import from um, in the middle 90s. I was just looking at the chart today, but in the middle 90s, I think we were down to 13% market share. Today, we're up to 38% market share um, of imports. And, you know, imports, excuse me, imports with a, the reality is um, imports have a, an advantage uh, because their, their currency is, uh, I mean, they can import for less effectively. And, and especially as it relates to Europe, um, they have a lot of marketing support. And, um, and so, you know, you could, the landed cost of some of these varietals is incredibly cheap. And the young consumer, I, I believe, is uh, making a beeline for a lot of these things, especially as it relates to New Zealand. So Blanc, um, Italian Pinot Grigio, um, and, uh, and uh, French Rosé. So what can we do to, you know, as you said, the marketing support, this is a big challenge. What, uh, what can domestic producers do to try and remain competitive? I would say largely um, you're going to have to not stand still. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to rely on your experience and what's always worked. And what's always worked is not going to work. And if, you, and if you're not keenly aware of that, um, you'll, you'll, be caught, you'll, caught, you'll be caught behind. Or if you're trying to get into the business right now, you'll try things that have tried to work before and they're not going to work this time. So you got to start with that. You got to understand, you know, where the consumer is. You got to understand where that margin is from a growing standpoint. Um, you also got to understand where the pain points are about distribution. If you can find a distribution model um, and and have a good relationship with distribution, you're going to make a lot of money right now. Uh, companies that have distribution are in good shape. The direct consumer side, it's difficult. Um, we're heading this. We're hitting this point where I think we're starting to start starting to see the same kind of consumers over and over again, rotating consumers in. And I think uh, largely we've got to figure out better ways to market direct you know, using technological means. And there's a lot of work that's being done underground right now. And hopefully we'll see it in the next five to seven years where we'll actually have some, some platforms where we can sell direct. Um, but doing the same thing again um, and expecting the same result is probably the definition of insanity for the first time. Yeah. That's great. That's great advice. Thanks, Rob. A lot of talk in, in your latest report about, uh, well, there's been a lot of talk about millennials now for probably the last five years, right? It's um, Everyone's kind of keeping an eye on the, on the millennials. In your latest report, you talk about the baby boomers and how their transition into retirement and their, their spending uh, decrease in, in spending and becoming um, uh, or transitioning to fixed income. The handing off of the baton, of, of the wine baton, if you will, from, from the baby boomer, boomers to the millennials, anything that Napa Valley, Sonoma uh, County, uh, premium wine producing areas in the U.S. have to fear um, because they, it, they appear to be very geared towards, towards the baby boomers and maybe not as geared towards the millennial um, consumption habits. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, right now the the dominant consumers are still the baby boomers, which is really boring to say. And you know, when I say that, being a boomer, people say, "Oh, yeah, self interested, whatever." You know, but I have the data that support it. Um, uh, the discussion of millennial is, you know, we're all as marketers, we all want to see what's what the next uh, 
consumer is. That's the growth category. So talking about the boomer again is just boring. Um, and you really do want to look at that growth category. And so what does what does that young consumer look like versus the one that's aging out, if you will? And, you know, the, the young consumers, they have a lot of life events that are different from what the older consumers experience. The older consumers got married a lot earlier. They um, uh, got into their careers earlier. They bought houses earlier. Um, had children earlier, all these things start a spending pattern. Um, and, you know, the young consumers uh, on, on top of that have a, a lot of student debt, and it's the college graduates that are largely the premium wine drinkers. So we're, now we're dealing with, uh, with the young consumers who are financially disadvantaged as well. You know, thinking that they're going to spend like their parents is is foolish. It's just not it's just not going to happen. Um, and so, you know, finding ways to, to properly, you know, navigate this change is what's going to be important. If you're in NAP as an example, um, you know, thinking that, thinking that your, your path to market is still going to be appealing to that young consumer is foolhardy. Um, in the same way that, uh, you know, people walking into a bank with dusty columns in it you know they used to be back in the old day they used to put columns inside banks out of marble because you wanted to show a level of of uh strength and and stability that's that's what you're trying to convey well for a lot of taste rooms that have been made in a, in a style of you know, lifestyles that are rich and famous you know the that doesn't hold the same edge for a lot of the young consumers who don't trust corporate america don't trust um, the government don't trust the way things are actually very much like the 60s and the boomers for that matter. And so they will grow out of that to some extent. But, but I think their tastes are, are going to be aligned a little bit different. And, they're, and they're, they are looking for something, I, I hate to overuse the term, but authentic. Um, and so, you know, the way we sell wine, how we sell wine, I, th- I think is, is going to need to evolve. And, and certainly the price categories are going are gonna to need to evolve too. You're going to have to find, as I say right now, you've got to find an on-ramp. If you if your lowest priced wine is forty five dollars, your young consumer is not going to be trying your wine. They're going to be drinking foreign wine. And and if you don't find that on ramp for the young consumer and and develop your brand for them, um, you, you know now you're just going to delay the the inevitable. Um, and so it's 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 important that we define what that looks like and and start on uh, business approaches to address that. It seems like the economics of the situation, given and an Napa Valley winery, who, where um, land costs have have increased at, at a at a consistent rate uh, over the years, are almost priced out of that opportunity to create that forty five dollar entry entry wine. Is that is that a true assessment? Yeah, you know the old uh, the old adage used to be that if your grapes cost uh, two thousand a ton. And you know your bottle price ought to be twenty bucks. You know if it was four thousand a ton, it'd be forty bucks. Well, today ten thousand a ton is pretty. You hear it a lot, and you know average price, uh, at least the, the government price reported in the in the Grape Crush report is I think sixty eight hundred something like that a ton last year. Um, so you're still talking about a sixty eight dollar bottle of wine, right? I mean you're you're well over the entry level. Um, you're 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 producing something that is a an affordable luxury. Um, it's uh, a couple pairs of shoes for a lot of people. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking through, you know, what do you do next? You, you can't 
you can't ignore the oncoming consumer. I mean, you, you do that to your own detriment. And so how are you going to do that? Lots of different ways. If it was me, I'd start partnering. If I had distribution, if I had a way to get to, to a consumer, I'd start partnering with, with the European uh, counterpart and figure out how to use their wine in, in partnership, bring in another family. They're, they're desperate in Europe to get, to get to our shores too. And so there's, there's probably a way to do that. Or might be might be partnering with somebody in in um, New Zealand or um, you know it could be uh, finding better value property in Oregon and Washington or it could be doing a Zinfandel out of Lodi um, there are lower par- lower priced areas where you can make very good wine at lower price points and um, in a style that points to your luxury brand um, in the same way that you have a BMW 325i and you have a 7 Series. Um, and, it, you know, that, that entry-level BMW is a, is a aspirational purchase for, for a lot of people. It's their best-selling, best-selling thing. But it's, you know, they want you to look higher. They want you to look at the 4 Series and the 5 Series, right? It's the same th- sort of thing. If, if you have a car and you're going to start with a 6 Series, People are going to get disinterested. They'll go off and buy Lexus. They'll go off and buy other things. So you've, you've got to do something about um, attacking this this younger consumer. Is is that why a lot of the the big players, Constellation, um, the Wine Group, uh, Gallo, are um, interested in these blends, these brands that that are not tied to a specific place or or variety? Yeah, that's a really uh, fascinating thing to me because what's what's really happening right now, um, just to, to back up one step, my generation, we we went to fighting varietals because we didn't get European, uh, you know. I and I still don't honestly. I don't get, I don't go to bed reading Robert Parker or uh, or you know figuring out all the different growths. I probably can't name all the. I think there's five first growths, right? Is there five? Yeah. Uh, so I I you know I can't do that. So we we created. It was uh, Benziger, I believe. They created, uh, you know, the whole no- notion of Sauvignon Blanc or Fumé Blanc back there, and uh, Mondavi coined, um, you know, Cabernet Merlot. We started talking about varietals instead of, um, you know, placed uh, producer-based uh, approach. So it made it more simple for the consumer to have a, a Napa Merlot, a Napa Chardonnay. You had an idea about quality, but it's just kind of a different varietal. Over time, that evolved though into we didn't really talk a lot about uh, vintage dates back then. We just said, ah, they're all about the same. They're all good. And um, and they largely, you know, they, 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 they are. I mean, it's, we, we normally don't get rain during harvest and things like that. So we have very consistent harvests in the, in the North Coast. And uh, But over time, we started becoming more refined in the way that we looked at it. Now it's a little bit more confusing. Now we got all these different varietals. We throw in red blends. Uh, it, it, we throw vintage dating. We throw producers into it. We start throwing um, uh, the different uh, vineyards and such. And pretty soon it's very confusing. So now we get the young consumer, and they look at the what we made it easier for ourselves by going by going varietal. And they look at it, and they go, oh, that's, that's just too much for us. Give me apothic red. <laughs> I'll take apothic red. I'm going to trust in the producer. I'm going to trust in Gallo. I'm going to trust in Apothic Red, for that matter. Uh, and so, you know, the young consumer, in, in the same way, they just don't have time. If there's no app that tells them what to do, it doesn't exist. And they, they just don't want to spend the time. And I do think they'll they'll come along just fine, just like all other, all other consumers, but they just don't want to spend that time right now. 
And um, and so the Apothic Reds and the other red blends are uh, – that's an on-ramp. That's an on-ramp for that consumer. And the wines, i got to tell you, if you haven't tried that wine, it's a $9 wine, and you ought to try it. If, you, if you're into drinking really expensive Napa cabs, you're making a mistake to not try that and understand what's what's driving consumption of the younger consumer because it'll it'll open your eyes. If that's the on-ramp, if, if – if red blends are, are an on-ramp for the millennial consumer, would it be safe to say that maybe craft beer and spirits could possibly be the off-ramp? Is there something to – should the wine industry be afraid of, of craft beer and, and spirits? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, every generation has, has pretty much been the same from that standpoint. You know, my parents' generation, they were more of a beer and spirits generation, period. And then they went into uh, generic wines. That was that's what they had for a special occasion. Uh, was was a generic wine, oftentimes. And then later on, they you know it was as I used to say, my my dad in my dad's cellar was uh, the bottle of uh, Gallo Hardy Burgundy kept in perfect storage conditions under the sink next to the garbage disposal. <laughs> so uh, you know that was that generation. You know my my generation. Very much the same as the current generation. From the standpoint is, when you're going through alcohol discovery, you're going to drink anything, and um, you might even be very efficient in the way you drink. You're looking for the, if you will, the biggest bang for your buck uh, because you don't have any money, you know? and so you drink rot gut stuff, and uh, eventually you have a little more money. You go, God, that tastes that tastes horrible. <laughs> And your tastes evolve, but but I think everybody it's it's easier to start with with beer and then you know a, a vodka orange juice uh, that's a, that's an easy on ramp um, and then you know your taste evolve you start to you start to look for anything and and that's really what's happened I think with the young consumers they've they've gone a step above my generation and and they they don't want to drink uh, Bud Light. Uh, they don't want to. They don't want to drink mass-produced beer, and and beer has been dropping like a stone for uh, well over a decade. It probably twenty years now, as craft beer came up, and and that's just another. It's another choice, and I don't think craft beer is going to go away. Although the growth rate is slowing in craft beer growth, it's still growing. Uh, it's not going to go away. It's just going to be a different part of of a consumer's consumption pattern. Um, I think going forward, but it's uh, inevitably. I think the, as consumers age, they they move over toward wine, and there's no reason to believe that that won't continue. You mentioned uh, uh, just a while ago about a lot of these um, producers being priced out of some of the more premium, let's say, more well-known regions. What what are some of the regions that you like on the West Coast in terms of uh, growth and potential for these wineries to start their on-ramp wines? Yeah, interesting question so if i if i was a very young person without a lot of money i would take the the malbec clones that are that are used in in mendoza argentina and i'd go to the eastern side of the sierra foothills where i could get water and where uh, you know the it's enough altitude that the heat escapes at night and uh, if you get a little bit of uh snow left on the Sierras, uh, it'll actually cool it down a little bit more. So you get the cool day, cool, cool nights, warm days that you need desert, you know, conditions, but water. I think, I think that's a, that's a great place. And University of Reno is trying to figure out how to make a wine industry there too. And, but the problem is, you know, you plant 
something, and then that's five years before you figure out what you got, then three years to vinify it, and then you taste it, and you go, well, that sucks. <laughs> I guess I guess we better not grow that there. That didn't work. Let's go try it somewhere. So it's, it's a generational thing, right? So even though from a practical standpoint, that that would be – the biggest bang for my buck if I was going to invest in the business, I'd, that's where I'd go. I'd go to Reno and figure out, you know, Lake Tahoe and the eastern side where you can buy desert for nothing. And, and, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's something there. But, you know, jumping through a couple of those generations to actually pull something like that off, it, it, it is Walla Walla up in Washington. It's different, uh, different AVAs up in Washington that are, that are proving out good, especially – it used to be that the, the, the grapes up in Washington would freeze about every five years, no hard freeze. And you kind of have to start over in a lot of cases. So there was that risk. But we haven't seen those kind of freezes uh, maybe 15 years. So the, the, the grape production that's come out of Washington has been just phenomenal. Um, and, you know, same with the Willamette Valley and, and even, to some extent, Southern Oregon, which people think of Oregon, um, you know, the problem in Southern Oregon is that everybody thinks Pinot in Oregon, but, you know, it's Tempranillo and other, uh, other varietals that are grown in Southern Oregon in warmer conditions, um, which it's another interesting, another interesting place. Of course, around here, uh, I've always loved the Sierra Nevadas, uh, but it's still very expensive. Uh, as you start to get into a lot of those places, but there's some decent uh, decent wines being being made there, and then the the central coast as well. California is an expensive place to to grow in general. And then if you look outside, you know you could say, well, maybe maybe the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. Um, but generally speaking, I'm gonna I want to want to be in more um, more dry conditions and not not have to fight what they do in let's say, New York and Virginia, which are both uh, established wine-growing states. Great. Thanks. What are you most excited about? What, what, what excites you? What energizes you about the wine industry? Trying to understand it. Um, I'm, I'm just uh, made up that way where I'm always asking why. And there are so many questions in the wine business. You know, I, I thought I'd get bored in it when I, when I moved up here. It's the reason I really didn't want to move up. I, my CEO at the time said, you got to move up. I said, I don't want to. And he says, well, how much is it going to cost me? And I said, well, now that's a different question altogether. <laughs> uh, uh, but that was one of the reasons I didn't want. I just figured I would get bored. And, and uh, it's a fascinating industry. Um, and so I get up every single day trying to understand why things are the way they are, trying to understand consumers, trying to understand uh, you know, pricing, um, trying to push back on common held beliefs that – you know, if you think about it a little bit, start to not make sense. Every now and then we get to these points, no matter what the topic is, and there's just something that gets embedded in the narrative, and sometimes it's just wrong. Um, and so, you know, fighting against those kind of tendencies and and being open to change, um, that that gets me going every single day. It's it's a super fun industry. It's not stayed stuffy at all. So on the flip side of the coin, what keeps you up at night? What what scares you about the industry? Uh, probably complacency is the biggest is the biggest thing, and and I I personally believe that that what we have seen economically in my lifetime has been um, the fallout from World War II, and that after World War II, the entire world was pretty much destroyed as an industrial base except the U.S. So everybody had to come to the U.S. for manufacturing. And up until 1975, we weren't a consumer economy. We were a 50-50 consumer 
in um, and uh, in um, manufacturing in 1975, um, and then you know we we start to evolve away from there. But but that's that's how the wealth was really created um, in in the United States. And you looked at GDP growth through that period of time, we were seeing you know six five five percent GDP growth, and now we're struggling for two percent. And and as the world has healed from that massive scar. Uh, now you see, you know, China with seven percent growth, and and you know what's happening there, and the kind of demand they have. We used to think that, uh, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, the BRIC countries, as we said, that they they might kind of take over the, um, the 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 world from a GDP standpoint, but they've had to struggle with more um, uh, internal uh, uh, fraud and and abuse and things like that that uh, have made it uh, a little bit more difficult on them. So I, I, I worry about, you know, living in a country that is not at a 4 5 6% growth when people expect it to be. And I worry about people making big investments in things when the opportunity isn't quite what they think it is. But just because it was doesn't mean it's going to be. So getting out in front of change especially in a, in a, in a long-term industry like this is absolutely critical. You know, you, you gotta be not necessarily first to market, but you gotta be predictive and you gotta get way out ahead of that change. And, you know, you better have good advisors around and, you know, if you do, then maybe you can increase your odds of success. My final question to you would be what advice would you have for Someone who looks at what what you do and says, "Hey, that might be the right job for me. I want to I want to be the next Rob McMillan." What what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, I'd say um, know your exits, use clean needles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's. It, I would say know yourself and. I think as a young person, for me, I, I didn't really, I didn't get who I was. I didn't understand my gifts. I struggled more with seeing my differences, and and especially being around in a banking community where everybody was so regimented. I, I was really uh, insecure about my ability. I I couldn't keep up with all these people that were so structured and seemed so, so they seemed so together. And then I, as I grew um, and started to understand you know, human opportunity and, and temperament and such, I, I started to recognize that actually nobody around me had natural ideas. They didn't have original thought. Um, so it's probably been my greatest life discovery is to recognize that there's it's okay to be extroverted and it's okay to be introverted. It's They're just different. Uh, if you're an extrovert, you talk a lot, and that's the way you process thought. If you're an introvert... You listen better. Um, maybe you're not as good at, at, at talking, but it's just it's two sides of the same thing. We need everybody to, to do it. So in order to actually be successful, I think you've got to take an inventory of your own human skills. And you've got to know yourself first. And that discovery period sometimes is pretty, is pretty painful. But if you, can, if you can get through that, then you can take a look at what skill sets you have and then figure out where you belong. Um, maybe you can be like me and... and um, and, and deal with that five to ten years of misery where you're a fish out of water and then get above the clouds. Or, you know, maybe you're a little smarter than me and understand your temperament and your skill sets a little bit better and get into a place where there's just uh, – you're just, you know, caught in the jet stream and you'll, and you'll soar. But uh, 
you know, don't necessarily go out. I don't, I don't believe in the Oprah thing. Follow your passion. A job is a job. Go out and work. And, uh, and, and there's no shortcut of that. But find something where you can express your own human uh, temperament and components uh, of, of how you're wired, and you'll find uh, success and happiness in that. That's very sage advice, and um, we're, we're very grateful that you took the time to come here today and share your, your insights into the wine industry with us. And uh, I know Geraldine is appreciative uh, too, and we look forward to having you back at some time in, uh, in the future. I look forward to coming back. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can write to us at listen at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. And if you want to send us a tweet, it's at NapaWineAcademy. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and you've been listening to the stories behind wine from Napa Valley Wine Academy.